Christmas, May 25th, 2006. And uh, I have to remind myself that I've got to go into summertime mode uh, because the uh, the thunderstorms are about. They've been about seven months in coming, and uh, you kind of get unused to uh, doing anything about it. But I can see uh, we've been we've been missed twice real closely so far today and yesterday. So um, I've got to make preparations here. But uh, <clears throat> if if this pro uh, program gets abrogated for whatever reason, mostly probably a power outage. Uh, we'll try to get back to it as best we can. I've got to get uh, myself some uh, backup uh, power. So at any rate, uh, it is summertime. Things can get weird around here, and um, <laughs> we've all been forewarned. Uh, we have with us today, again, Alan Watt. The uh, website is Cutting Through the Matrix. Um, the uh, series that he's done is the Cutting Through series, the three-volume work. Um, that is available on the website. We'll talk more about that later. But I just want to welcome you, and, and thank you really for coming back, Alan. Oh, it's a pleasure. Yep. All right. One thing uh, we left uh, not to do the last time you were on, and for good reason, uh, it's probably one of the, the most, you know, kind of wild type of uh, topics you can discuss, and for obvious reasons to our listeners. Mm-hmm. But we can talk about uh, when you say uh, the malleable culture uh, and how we're, we're manipulated. One of the one of the elements has got to be as much as we may like it, and that's rock and roll. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's culture creation. Everything to do with uh, music, drama, the arts is what's used to create or alter or update culture. Would that necessarily mean, though, that everybody through the ages, to include you know Sophocles and Shakespeare and all, um, were they all mind opping people, or were they, or at times, were they just telling a story for the sake of entertainment? I don't think so. I mean, Plato talked about culture creation two thousand three hundred years ago. And he went through the whole procedure. Uh, in fact, in, in ancient Greece, it was mandatory at one point that everybody attend uh, the, the traveling theaters that came across uh, the, the Middle East and, and in the, the Grecian areas. And uh, even the slaves had to attend uh, at least one performance. And he talked about this, and he said that uh, uh, that is where the women get their, their costumes and their, their fashion. He called it the fashion industry. Mm-hmm. And he said it's backed up by the drama, which teaches them certain morals or obedience to the system or the crown or the king. Mm-hmm. And he said then the music, uh, which backs it up, and affects the young and sets them into a certain mode of thinking and seeing things. So this, this science of culture creation has always been perfectly understood. Well, you talked about in the, in the Greek times of those uh, of those plays mm-hmm. that people were um, compelled to go watch, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. All right. Now, you know, books come, books go. Um, I can choose to read them or not. Uh, but when you do take a look at the pervasive um, role that that uh, television has played in, in one's home, mm-hmm. even though people aren't compelled to watch what's going on. They really are kind of drawn to it. And again, here's a situation of like, well, they may not be dragged in to do it, but they do it to themselves. Mm-hmm. Uh, would it be that the electronic culture, especially to include 24-7 television in one's home, um, people are really doing it to themselves? In a sense, you see, people have always had a tremendous capacity for entertainment. This is a trait that we have naturally. It's innate and uh, it's well understood as a science, always has been. And uh, uh, interestingly, in the Soviet Union, actors and playwrights were, were they called themselves uh, uh, the culture creators. They called themselves that. 
openly. And when uh, after 9/11, uh, when the big hullabaloo came about with uh, the Emmy Awards, I think it was the Emmy or Oscars or something, um, uh, Susan Sarandon came forward and she actually called herself "We" on behalf of the culture creation industry. So they're well aware of their role in this. And and the, the communist system, interestingly enough, um, or the Soviet system, had departments of culture. Now, why would you need a department of culture if you and the people were the culture? You see. Now, not only that, the Western world and all the democratic countries, as they're called, including Canada, has a department of culture. So, really, uh, these guys give out grants to playwrights and musicians and artists to write um, along certain themes, particularly correct themes, and they market them to the public uh, via entertainment. Well, since in the United States we don't have a department, at least governmentally, on on the base, uh-huh. who's in charge with that? What do you think the uh, surrogate is here? Uh, well, there's no doubt. You see, the CFR, which is the American branch of the Royal Institute of International Affairs, had a meeting. Uh, it was about a month-long meeting in Britain back in the late 60s, and and um, the whole topic, the whole argument that we're having, was which country should create the, the future uh, global culture. Should be left to the British uh, industry, including their, their, their. They still had a sort of film industry at that time, a movie industry, or should it be Hollywood? And after the month was over, it was in the newspapers. They decided that Hollywood and and uh, would basically create the culture for the world, backed up with the, the musical industry. Um, with uh, with regard to, um, I guess one of the most popular groups ever. Mm-hmm. We regard to rock and roll. Uh, we look at the Beatles. Mm-hmm. Now, you're not the only individual. In fact, you're the only other one that I know of, and I'm, there may be more, um, who have identified a certain individual as being responsible for their um, meteoric rise mm-hmm. uh, and also probably involved with one of the more notorious think tanks in the world, which is, I guess, Tavistock. Uh, Tavistock and the Frankfurt Institute. Um, the, the Frankfurt Institute is where... Theodore Adorno, who was a master at music, he understood the complete science and psychology of music. Um, he, he, took, he taught courses there. Uh, Frank Zappa took, took a course from him. And everybody who took uh, the course came out as a superstar, heavily financed, heavily backed, uh, singing particular types of, of music which really did affect uh, teenagers at the time. Um, and so again, this was one of the, the strategies they used. Theodore Adorno owned the, the musical rights of the Beatles uh, up until he died. And he passed, do you know? Uh, I, I can't remember exactly. I think it was the late 80s. Um, uh, or, or maybe, yeah, probably the late 80s or mid-80s because Paul McCartney put in a bit uh, as this, at the same time so did Michael Jackson uh, Michael Jackson won, and he he presently owns the rights of the Beatles. In fact, recently it was in newspapers. He, because of some trouble he was in uh, legally, he was talking about selling them, putting them back up for sale. So, yeah. Well, it's going to be. I, I know that when um, I was, I subscribed this particular email group, uh, Peter Myers out of Australia, mm-hmm. and uh, somebody was reviewing Coleman's uh, conspirators hierarchy, and of course. This is the first time I saw it. In fact, when you mentioned it, mm-hmm. I thought back and going, 
okay, now Coleman said this is just the same individual, and I went back and looked in the book, and, and of course it was. Mm-hmm. He identified the Dorno as well. Yeah. But it's going to be very hard for people to believe that there could have been this subterfuge and him being behind the scenes, at least while the four were together. Mm-hmm. Um, and yet uh, this individual, uh, you claim beyond a reasonable doubt, is, it did what he did, and I guess was probably pretty content not to have his name up in the, the limelight, eh? Yeah, and in fact, that goes right along with what Professor Carl quickly said um, in Tragedy and Hope and the Anglo-American Establishment, the two big uh, books he wrote, uh, one on behalf of the CFR as a historian, uh, and he said that there are movers and shakers behind the scenes who wield far more power than than people who are elected, and they are content to know they're doing the the great work, basically. Uh, That's the reward, their financial reward uh, is huge. They don't get the acclaim from the public, but they're left unmolested um, while the front men take the heat, basically. Uh, so that's that's standard, yeah. I watched the criticisms of uh, Coleman's book because of this one element. And a lot of them uh, who, who were critical felt that because of this one item, that it, it completely, um, I guess, debunked uh, his whole his whole work. I mean, that's how much they couldn't believe it. Now I yeah. can understand it. Uh-huh. You know, it's I, I don't know how I felt when I first encountered it with Coleman. Mm-hmm. It seemed a little bit far out, but you know, in this day and age, it doesn't mean it's wrong. However, let me ask you this for people who are sitting there probably going, well, what about when they went on their solo careers? Mm-hmm. Was there a time when they were at least adept enough that if they went their separate ways, they were at that time at least musicians enough that they could carry their own careers? Uh, maybe after a, a while, and even a really long time, actually, uh, after they split up. But, um, you see, basic logic has to be used. And guys who are coming up to their, night, their early 20s or their teenagers or 20s, uh, don't write that kind of music. Uh, three chord wonders, uh, that's the, the general guy at 18, 19, 20, 21. Um, uh, they don't know how to, to uh, involve classical music into the mode of rock and roll, uh, the minor keys, uh, all the augmented chords which come in. These, these are much more advanced uh, types of music uh, that, that the general young guys don't don't know. It takes a lot of practice and years of experience to get there. Uh, tempo changes in the middle of songs. Uh, and also the reflection. If you, if you look at some of the words, um, what young person is, is going to sit and cry about yesterday, all my troubles seem so far away. That's the sort of thing a much older person would write. So there's many, many clues if you just break it up. Okay. Um, well, when you mentioned that Frankfurt was another one of the notorious think tanks. Uh-huh. We're, we're speaking about Germany, okay? Yeah, yeah. Now, would that also have any kind of um, involvement with the fact that uh, the Beatles seemed to get their uh, teeth cut in the uh, in, in Germany? Uh, yeah, well, it's possible. Um, I never believed the build-up to these big groups. Um, play, I mean, supposedly they were playing just general run-in-the-mill stuff, uh, rhythm and blues type stuff very simple and suddenly they come out with all this new stuff uh, they were given a clean cut image with even a, even suits to to go with them and the haircut of course uh, so that even parents would accept them and once they made enough hits and got a big huge following then they went off to India and uh, then came the rush of, of blending Christianity with Hinduism which strangely enough is exactly what theosophy said they would do in the late 1800s I, I know that 
as the story goes, uh, George Martin, their producer, mm-hmm. um, had told them after I guess their first two albums. All right, guys, it's nice to do covers uh-huh. of, um, of R and B, but we got to start doing some stuff ourselves. Mm-hmm. I'm just wondering, did you ever hear of any information regarding, you know, Martin and Adorno? Uh, n- not really, except I, I know that Adorno came over. And he was the head of the London Philharmonic Orchestra for a while, and a good friend of the Queen, the Queen Elizabeth II. Uh, so um, he was in that same circle for sure, and it has to meet, uh, it's impossible not to in that type of circle. And Martin had a classical upbringing, did he not? He did, yeah. But the master of, of classical, I mean, see, I've read Theodorno, uh, his books, and they are amazing for the depth of understanding of the psychology of music. It's uh, probably the best written. Now, are you, do you not have a, a musician strain in you as well? Oh, yeah. I've been up there, yeah. All right. So uh, at least when you talk about composition, you know from what you speak. Oh, yeah, I know. I know I know exactly what uh, young guys can do. Um, and and you, when, you, when you write, you write in a certain type of uh, pattern, you might say. It's like a fingerprint. And so you can always tell who's who by their fingerprints. And... Uh, they can't jump from one fingerprint to another in a completely opposite direction and be just as good generally. Whereas you find with with the Beatles, etc., um, that this tremendous uh, classical influence and mixed up with the rock and roll. And yet none of the even Paul McCartney admitted he can't and never could write music. as well 
um, as part being part of culture creation. Now, from the days of Plato, Plato mentioned that nothing comes from the grassroots. Nothing. So what he's telling you is that anything that did come from the grassroots, because it's not planned by the top, it could have unforeseen repercussions as it goes through, uh, ripples through the system. So everything that's given to you in culture and authorized comes from the top down. And when, when you look at what happened in the 60s and 70s, um, when this explosion of pop, which is like father, remember, pop, and rock is again the Masonic rock. Uh, that's where it comes from, like Rockefeller. Um, uh, you're looking at an, a planned explosion um, which was intended to totally alter the, the existing culture because it had done its job. Now that they go into the new phase of separating the youth from adults. And it was aimed directly at the young. And it's very interesting to notice that ever since, each uh, generation as it grows up, up to the age of 22, uh, will, will stick with the kind of music they get at their time. And they end up in old folks' homes, in geriatric homes, uh, dancing to, to rock music. Uh, one day you'll, you'll see people dancing to, to rap. Uh, they don't go beyond. Now, the thing is, this was understood in the days of Beethoven, because Beethoven also was financed to do experimentations in theaters with certain types of disharmonic music. And they found with some of the disharmonics, um, it would cause anger and aggression in the audience, and even fights broke out with discordant notes and sounds. So this, this has been tried uh, very, very well down through the ages. And then, of course, when they mixed the music with the standard drum beat and the heavy bass tempo, and then, of course, out came the LSD, which, uh, the Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds, uh, which was distributed throughout every university in Europe by the, the garbage bag full that was thrown over university walls from limousines to get it all started. And this all came from the top. Yeah, and at the same time, out came the abortion clinics. Um, they had the pill for, for, for women as well. Uh, it came out at the same time. Um, they also had venereal disease clinics sprouted up for free. Uh, so all this was planned to coincide at the same time to destroy the old culture that had done its job and to bring in the new, which was, of course, the, the dissolution of the family. Well, you know... I, I guess our lives are somewhat parallel as far as age goes, and mm -hmm. you know certainly I got weaned on the Beatles, and at that time it was kind of hold your hand stuff. I like you, you like me. Let's guess, let's go steady. Mm -hmm. yeah. And of course, through the 70s, it was the true cluster, you know what? Mm -hmm. And um, and that really was kind of debasing if I think about it. Then as time goes on, I look at, at rap, and I mean I can't stand it, and I figure well it's because it's just not my music, my generation. But something tells me, and it's had a great staying power. Mm -hmm. It's over 20, almost 30 years now. Mm -hmm. And I'm saying to myself, how can that stay on the top of the hill uh -huh. when so many other genres come in and come out yeah. and you know, leave in five years? Now, is there, is there an element also, and when you were talking about the discordance, mm -hmm. where um, rap really gets to the brain more so than any of the music previous to it? it? It does, and it also gets to a specific age group more so than the previous ones. Because it, uh, for someone over 25 to hear it for the first time, in fact, uh, they'll, they'll, they'll shut off from it. They won't listen to the words. So it's directly uh, meant to go into the, the minds of the very young. And, of course, it's primarily violence and all 
judge meeting, it's, it's like a court. A court is a Masonic lodge, in fact. And the judge wraps uh, the, the gavel, the mallet, to begin and close the session. And that's called wrap. You wrap the, 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 the base. And uh, this is the end of the music. You wrap it up. This is the end. That's as far as we're going. The next kind of man won't need music, in fact, if they get their way. All right. Um, we've got a lot to cover, and I'm, you tell me exactly what the truth is. I don't want to keep you over time, but if we do go a little over, could you uh, uh, brook that? Sure. Mm-hmm. All right. Thank you. Um, <clears throat> to wrap up at least the rock and roll thing, we can admit that there seems to be something very strange that took place, especially through the late 60s and the 70s. It was a pretty big body count amongst uh, rock and rollers. Mm-hmm. Um, I know Alex Constantine has done some work about this, uh, another individual by the name of Schimmel. Um, were any of these artists, and we can talk about Morrison and Hendrix and such, uh, did any of them um, uh, shake their handler's world or something like that to deserve the, uh, the end they met, or was this just their own um, you know, incontinence? Um, well, I've seen it. I've seen it how the uh, the business works. I, I tended to stay clear of contracts, which really helped me. Um, the, the, I mean, for instance, I know the Bay City Rollers pretty well, and those guys still haven't got a penny from, from what they got. But what they did get was was the usual stuff, um, uh, including the women, which are shown to them. And when you're young uh, and a young guy, uh, that's very appealing. You can live in top hotels as long as you're on top of the world and having number ones. It isn't until later you start to ask where the money all is, and then you find out that, that uh, it's been squandered by or safely put away by your handlers, by your managers and agents. Uh, it's a tremendous rip-off business. You think a lot of these individuals then, either wittingly or unwittingly, got kind of hooked up into a rock and roll servitude? Oh yeah, no, there's no doubt about that. There, there was some of them that were that were really they had a good they had a real impact on the young. Uh, certainly, were given extra money. Um, had even their homes bought for them, uh, for some of them, uh, or estates even. Um, they, they, they they could really get to the young, um, and I've seen that happen too. Just paid by their their, their agents. They didn't even have to handle the money. Uh, the actual uh, singers themselves, and they seldom saw the money. It wasn't until they really had to do something for themselves. They went into their account and found out it's not there. You know. Um, but I've also seen stars being made and picked out of lineups. Mm-hmm. Okay. And uh, yeah. How about American Idol now? Is that bizarre or what? Uh, yeah. Well, because they occupy them with something, and that's really what they're. And it's almost like winning the lotto. The poor get the lotto. You know. And it's the so, same idea. Have you ever seen a particular network host this, though, and all the other networks just give it all this play? I mean, yeah. today, I, yeah. I mean, I had to hide from the network news on, you know, the alphabets because uh-huh. I just didn't want to see this stuff. I mean, leave me alone. Yeah, uh-huh. I, you know, so when you see this kind of working together, mm-hmm. um, you know, it, it kind of stinks. I mean, it smells of something. It's highly manipulative. It, it also is a good safety valve for the young because this, this is Generation X. The X means to be written off. You, you work, you're flipping hamburgers and, and stacking shelves in Walmart. Uh, that's the generation X. So they're giving them another form of escapism so that they can dream those those years away rather than protest. You know? Yeah, and the use of the word idol, too, is very rich. Yeah, uh, idol is a 
well, the whole thing with the Hollywood, the Hollywood, mm-hmm. and and Holly is holy, and Holy Day, uh, it all comes from the same root, and Hollywood cast the spell over the world. That's its job, and so uh, that with the music coupled with the music industry and much music, uh, or M and M, Master Mason, yeah, you find that that uh, they are filling the heads of the young with with their drama. Uh, their fiction and their downloading of new culture. Uh, you uh, share with me a pretty interesting anecdote, if you would uh, share it with our listeners. Um, I, I, I guess it came up as uh, part of my asking you, why was Lennon popped in 1980? Uh, was, was there something that he was about to say? And you recounted a, a time. Uh, you want to share that anecdote about when he so, sort of got uh, woken up? Well, um, if you look at the, the Sgt. Pepper's uh, album cover, it, supposedly on there is all the favorite uh, people in history of the Beatles. And they have, uh, of course, you have the, the, the Devils sign there, given by, I think it was Lennon. This is, a, this is all cartoon drawings. But you find Marks in there, too. And, um, Crowley. and Alistair Crowley, the OTO, uh, who worked for MI five or six uh, so y- 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 someone uh, the Beatles didn't draw that up I'm sure however uh, when they were over in Canada there was a professor or Driscoll at the University of Toronto uh, who was present when Marshall McLuhan talked to Lennon and Marshall McLuhan was uh, really into the, the, the new age that was coming of electronics and, and cyberspace and all this kind of stuff and uh, he told Lennon, he says, you do know you're being used. And then they had a, a quiet conversation, and it was after that that, that Lennon sort of changed. Any yeah. um, reason why you think he might have been hit uh, by uh, a Manchurian candidate? Uh, well, there's no doubt with the Manchurian candidate. It's amazing. And, and he was also shot outside the, the very doorway where they filmed Rosemary's Baby. That's yeah. no coincidence. But Dakota has some kind of history, doesn't it? Yeah, oh, yeah. So, so it, yeah, I think um, uh, Lenin still had enough of a following to to have uh, been listened to. See, a small person who's unknown could, could say the most amazing stuff and, and back it up, but no one would listen because we're trained to follow the stars. So they give us the stars. So when a star talks, um, we listen. We, we think they're very important people. Uh, we, we do listen. That's why they, they recruit them for political campaigns. Uh, they might not know any more about politics than your local plumber, but the fact is they're a star, and the public, um, unfortunately, grovel at stars. Uh, obviously, that Double Fantasy album that came out, the last one he was to release, mm-hmm. was very, very sweet and much different than some of the anger that he had let out, either with the Beatles or in, the, in between time. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, again... Do you think, well, I, I guess what I'm driving at is why Why would you choose to take him out at that particular time? I mean, if he was taken out, there had to be an order. Those who gave it, what did they possibly uh, could have feared from him? Um, I know that, that if he had been approached to be knighted, because I can remember when they got the order of the British Empire many years ago, mm-hmm. and they, they appeared with their top hats and tails, and eventually they gave it all back, or the little medals back. But I know they were, they were going to get knighted. Uh, Paul McCartney eventually did. And I think Lennon then would have been uh, speaking out publicly in the newspapers as to why he, he 
think that would have started the ball rolling. Yeah. yeah. Well, I, I, real quickly, um, kind of a foreshadowing of what would take place on a very minor basis. I had a friend when we were all living in New York, and mm -hmm. uh, he was working with the Bureau. Yeah. And uh, he was doing a lot of uh, photographic surveillance of supposed uh, emissaries who were believed to be KGB, okay? Mm -hmm. He was all over Manhattan. Yeah. He happened to see Lennon walking by the car that he was sitting in while they were casing somebody. He gets out of the car, he approaches Lennon from behind and taps him on the shoulder, and he said, Lennon, like, just jumped 17 feet in the air. Uh -huh. <laughs> and I said to him, man, you don't come up to people like that. <laughs> yeah. And uh, ironically, what would happen, what, something like six, six years later, mm -hmm. uh, you know, it would be a back shot that did it. So. Yeah, and the thing is, too, what I really was astounded at was when I discovered that communism was created by the West, mm -hmm. by, by its supposed opposition. And we're talking about culture creation. I was often asked to sing at different functions, and, and often I wouldn't know even what they were. I'd just arrive there and sing a couple of songs. And there was a place in Toronto in the, the 80s which was uh, called the Trojan Horse. And I just popped in there, actually, just to see what it was all about. And they asked me up to sing, and I sing a few songs. And then they came up and said, well, that's not radical enough. And I said, what do you mean? They said, well, the government pays us to bring in radical singers here to change society. So they were getting grants from the government to operate this place, to get radicalism going. Mm -hmm. And this was happening in, in Britain and all the, the democratic countries at the same time. They were all over the place in every major city. Uh, uh, yeah, uh, rock and roll plays a very interesting part in uh, the second half of the 20th century, and obviously into the 21st. Um, we are with Alan Watt. The website is CuttingThroughTheMatrix.com. He does have the Cutting Through series. We did ask him, and he is going to release in time DVDs. Uh, anything else uh, I might have missed on, on the, the offerings? Um, yeah, there's much more coming out. And, okay. and just to let people know, there's one little thing, because I don't take PayPal, and I think someone's using my name, <laughs> because PayPal sent me a, a message today. Um, Seeing they're cutting, they're cutting my account. I don't have an account with them. So You're cutting an account that you don't have. That's right. So <laughs> I'd like to warn the people: don't fall for anybody that's out there um, claiming they're me. I don't take PayPal. All right, yeah. you do instruct people on how you want to be paid. Do you want to just tell us right now? Yeah, you, they use the international. It's got to be international postal order from your post office. Um, there's no problem getting them. They're easy to get. And uh, just post it to me with your order, and I, I get it back to you in no time. Yeah. Right. And uh, we do that with Charles Wilcox and North around Calgary. However, for folks that are in Canada, mm -hmm. uh, what's the relationship there as far as what payment you'll take? Uh, they, can, they can do just general uh, postal orders, uh, Canadian postal orders. Yeah. And uh, can they send fiat currency to you too? Um, they could if they want to, because they, they get through, yeah. Uh, I find also, I have to tell you, that uh, whatever Wilcox and I send back to each other has a, has a habit of getting opened. <laughs> I had three letters today. Each one was opened. Uh, yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, that's, that's another whole story, what's going on between uh, our two countries. And it's the new freedom. Uh -huh. oh. yeah. All right. Uh, you can get in touch with us uh, if you want to ask a question or make a comment to Alan. You can do that with um, uh, Hotmail, uh, email 
my hotmail, which is visigod.hotmail.com, and we have at least, I think, one or two questions I'm going to pose to you as soon as we come back there, Alan. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's visigod.hotmail.com. If you choose to use uh, instant messaging via Yahoo, use biz, B-Y-Z, 1400, uh, or MSN, it's just Visigod. Um, having said that, we do have a question, and I think um, it may not be in the flow of everything, but it certainly is when it is considered culture. It may not be music. Um, these folks had, had posed this question, that concerning our contemporary culture, why is there such a huge upsurge in young people getting tattoos? And I would just say body piercing and everything else as well. Mm-hmm. What about that, Alan? It's getting them ready for insertion of chips in the body. Uh, and making it fashionable, trendy. Uh, they had discussions at Loyola University about ways of chipping every human. This is the World Science Meetings, sponsored by the U.S. Department of Commerce. And they, they, they thought they'd give it snob appeal, uh, because they must make it trendy and, and almost give it snob appeal. So, so they're, they're coming out with these designs, and body piercing was a, a crucial step to accept the piercing of the body for insertion of chips and so on. I uh, I hear the scripture, and I know you feel differently about that. In fact, we got a couple of questions along those lines that I'll I'll bring up to you. But I always felt that you leave the body the way it is. I, I you know I don't like mm-hmm. to paint anything on it or stick anything into it. Yeah. And uh, it would make sense that that certain taboo has been um, uh, broken through. Mm-hmm. And so if people get used to putting things on or in themselves, mm-hmm. what big deal is it if the chip goes in as well? Right? Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. It's a conditioning process. Yeah. Okay. Uh, let's see. I got another one for you. It says, um, and I, you know, actually, I had asked you if I could ask you about this when mm-hmm. we were speaking uh, around three o'clock or so. Yeah. And, and here's somebody who wrote a question anyway. Uh, the individual writes, "I am very curious how far up the pyramid of power uh, he really knows about, and what is the nature of their religion." So, who are the they, mm-hmm. and what is their religion? Uh, it's a complicated religion in a, in a sense. Um, I've talked to some people who are up amongst them, and uh, they're they're above what we would call Freemasonry. They're much way, way higher. Uh, they do go through ceremonies where they bring on what they claim are entities into them, which gives them extra power, uh, intellect, definitely longevity, and um, energy. Uh, it also makes things happen for them, to, to those around them, in their favor. And uh, the first time one of them told me this, I, I couldn't believe it, because I know the whole the whole ceremony, they described it. And uh, another person on a different side of the country told me exactly the same thing, up, and he was up there too. And then since then I've had a few of them tell me uh, in other countries, and what they described was um, a room where high adepts come in, and the the, the 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 candidate who's already way up beyond masonry um, has brought on this square stage uh, with two escorts, uh, a, a pyramid of brilliant light uh, envelopes them on all sides, and you can see that the, the two escorts' eyes glow red in this light. That's all you see, and as they're doing a little chant and in the audience there are the other adepts uh, the the candidate's eyes blink on red and that's it done and uh, so they've all described the same ceremony to me and so there's definitely something to this there's something which gives them the higher cunningness it's it's not quite 
nature of their cunningness and their understanding of human nature. And, of course, some of them have also told me that they believe they're descended physically from uh, what some people might call fallen angels, um, which came here in a spirit form. And because they were closer or more recent from the creation itself, they willed from the, the matter on earth, they willed their own bodies into existence, and these bodies were perfect, so that the perfect humans or perfect spirit that they had could inhabit them. And then as they integrated with the people who were here, they began to lose all of these uh, special supernatural or psychic abilities, and hence the need to go back to inbreeding again for the perfect body it had to be perfect from that, that, that strain, that, that link, so that the, the perfect spirit could inhabit it. They do believe in reincarnation, a big, big time. But, but it's reincarnation of their own families down into their own families again and again. Well, you know, scripture bears out the situation about other world uh, individuals um, having intercourse with uh, earthly women. Um, some say, I guess, that the flood wiped that all out. Some say that it continues on and on. What's interesting to me, I mean, I know that the Old Testament is so, uh, there's so much allegory and hidden esoteric within there. That's why that uh, the Old Testament is present in all the Masonic lodges. Um, that's the rule book for the esoteric nature. Uh, but it's interesting that even the few names that they give you of the fallen ones, the ones who interbred with women, uh, each one was a, a particular specialist in science, a particular science, mathematics or, or, or chemistry, etc. So that's of interest to me. Before we go any further down this line, somebody jumped in late, so we can just kind of do this and move along. The individual, individual said, um, I just started listening, were you talking about the Beatles with Alan? Uh, Is this an anti-Beatles viewpoint? I've always thought the Beatles were anti-NWO, just look at John Lennon. And, oh, okay, yeah. There's been a lot of speculation he was taken out by a Manchurian candidate, and we discussed that. Um, Lennon might have been rubbed if he was becoming, so to speak, anti-NWO. Mm -hmm. But the group itself, whether it knew what it was doing as far or for whom it was doing it, certainly wasn't. I don't, I don't think you would call the Beatles anti-NWO. No, because even in the album, after they came back from the Soviet Union, and they said, and of course they, they, they sang the song, There's Going to Be a Revolution. And they also sung Back in the USSR, You Don't Know How Lucky You Are. And of course the USSR supposedly was set up for globalization and a socialist system worldwide, run by a small elite. You know. Would you call that a laboratory for the um, shape of things to come? Uh, definitely. Uh, All right. Yeah. And, and it was a, a capitalist construct? Oh, oh, it was funded from the beginning by the banks from the West. Uh, mm -hmm. And that's, that's been well documented by a number of authors uh, to say that, yes, um, even the revolution, the Bolshevik revolution was financed in the West. It was uh, from the very beginning. In fact, even Canada, where Trotsky was caught in uh, the east coast of Canada on board a ship heading out that way. Right. And he, he had bags full of cash from the New York banks, from Kunlob and different companies. And... Um, a letter came from Wilson, actually it was a, a telegraph from Wilson uh, asking the Canadian authorities to let him go. And Wilson had a, uh, and immediately he, he got a stamped passport sent right up by express for, for, for Trotsky and they let him go. Yeah, Trotsky and his family were apprehended by Canadian um, uh, uh, 
Bayview, were they not? Uh, yeah, they mounted the, the police car, and at, at, at the, at the, she had docked into, to, I think it was um, um, Nova Scotia, the dock at, at Nova Scotia. It, it, it docked in there before it continued on, uh, and that's where he was taken off board and, and put in, in a cell. And I believe even the Prime Minister of England also urged that situation to let him go. Oh, yeah, it, it came from the top. Both and it had to. It was an interesting uh, scurry to get the guy to his destination in a hurry. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, going back to um, that first question uh, from this particular listener who uh, posed a few. Um, but but who are they? I mean, first of all, who are we looking at nowadays? I mean, in, in the United States, I would say it, it's the characters like Rockefeller, mm -hmm. uh, Carnegie, the foundations. Um, and even up by you, Bronfman, are they not all in this? They're all in it. However, in their own religion, uh, those that work are not at the top. Anyone who does work of any kind, this, this is very... It's, actually, it's more like a Brahmin-type religion than anything, including the order they're setting up, which Charles Galton Darwin said would be a new caste system for the world. And... Uh, this, there's no doubt there's a um, the Rockefellers and these boys are, are, are put out there and well funded and protected uh, to do what they do but they're not the bosses because at the top they have the they call it the lazy boy and the lazy boy does no work uh, he might make occasional suggestions or comments but his helpers must put it into action they take comments from him and just put it that, that way there's no comeback on these people if, if, if someone's rubbed out for instance so-and-so is being a nuisance. Um, so, so the lazy boys at the top uh, are the real bosses. Now, who they are, uh, are, they are very, very old families, very wealthy families, and very quiet families. Uh, there was one here that Gorbachev comes up to see uh, in Ontario. And um, they're called the Llewellyn family. And they helped, I think, start off Merrill Lynch and back then. And they're private bankers, live way out in the country. And um, I think one of them at one time was lieutenant governor for the Queen to represent Canada. So they've been heavily involved in the past with with uh, the British um, Federation, you might say. And the other, well, would you say that Soros is probably part of it? Soros is a front man. Um, and lower down on the totem pole, uh, he was picked up by the, by the Rothschilds. Uh, Soros uh, has quite a history. Um, and people think it's a Jewish conspiracy, but uh, Soros himself was turning in Jews, being one himself. And that's exactly what the Rothschilds and guys like them wanted. Someone who had no conscience in doing what they were doing. And if you take the word Geo, see Geo or George, is the world and, and the, the, let, the rest of the George the, the Rouge is the red world that's what that means this is a Mason George is a Masonic name and red is their color for, the, for their conquering and their advancement of the great work so Soros comes from a Greek word uh, which um, means the serpent or snake or dragon uh, and so these, these names are actually made up for them and, and Soros, uh, he did boast in the, in the British Daily Mail about 10 years ago how he'd phoned two of his friends and they played the stock market in Britain and deliberately pulled the rug 
uh, causing the pound to crash in Britain. They came out with millions of pounds uh, to their profit, and he boasted for half a page on how he and two friends did this. Then the British had to go to the big bankers and, and borrow more money to get the pound up again. Uh, so these guys have immunity to do what they're doing. However, Soros, like Rockefeller, uh, his main job is to accumulate so much money, which he then uses to push uh, non-governmental organizations, which claim to, to represent various public institutions. And, of course, that, that's how this new system is to be run, is demands by NGOs uh, demanding laws uh, that the government's only too happily to put in. And that was exactly how the Soviet system w w ran. It was run by NGOs, although the tops of the NGOs were picked by the Politburo. Also, it's interesting, too, that George Soros came out with the book The Open Society, which is somewhat reminiscent of uh, Wells' The Open Conspiracy. Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. so, uh, mm -hmm. um, about the religion, mm -hmm. Craig Heidbickner wrote a book called the uh, OTO, Beyond Freemasonry. Mm -hmm. um, there's a few individuals out there who claim um, that Freemasonry will go beyond the 33rd degree mm -hmm. in the Scottish Rite and become extremely, extremely occult. Mm -hmm. uh, do you sign on along with that? Oh, yeah. I mean, I've seen uh, in Mexico with a lot of people from the OTO because the OTO, most musicians are encouraged at the top to join it. And I've been to parties where priests from the OTO have walked in, and um, I've seen what goes on there. So, yeah, it's highly, highly occultic. Even the members up to the 97th or 96th degree don't know what it's all about uh, because it was much higher than that. And um, there are definitely forces at work uh, that can be utilized. Some are natural within people uh, and that they're taught how to use them. Other ones are, you might say, supernatural. Yeah. Well, you, you know, when you talk about the red eyes, I had to think back to the book that Van Helsing wrote. Great name, too, huh? Uh, about um, secret societies and their power and influence in the 20th century, and he claimed that they were uh, 99 degree lodges. Mm -hmm. And I don't know if we said this between ourselves before, but there were 99 of those 99 degree lodges, mm -hmm. all presided over by a demon. It, it, technically, it is, and and then even even each lodge has a has sub ones. As, as this, this is what they say. You know, this is what they claim. Uh, and each candidate gets, uh, as I say, takes one on. And the, the, the contract basically is that uh, hell to an entity is absence of the physical world, uh, physical sensation. And if you imagine sort of a, a being a mind way out of in space and you couldn't move, you couldn't feel anything, couldn't hear anything, uh, that is hell to an entity. So heaven is here to them. And when they can come into a body... And, and, and the higher the entity, the more time they, can, they will take in that person's body. Uh, perfect possession, as they call it, is when the, the person is at home with the entity and the entity is at home with them. There's no, there's no struggle there whatsoever. Uh, so, you know, I've met some of these people who even work in government in Canada. And um, I, I've watched them operate with a, their occultic stuff as they try to either hypnotize people or, or, or um, bring them under their, their, their influence or spell, you might say. <laughs> but I've seen them operate. Uh -huh. um, well, one of the questions also I got was, um, I, let's see, it says, oh, as, how, as far as how, back, how far back 
Illuminati goes. Um, the Bavarian Freemason uh, are the only reference I can find to them. Um, I guess the question is then, and I'm, I'm kind of trying to restructure it, uh, and that is, wh wh how far back are there any references to Illuminati? I mean, I, mm -hmm. I hear that it goes back to Mystery Babylon religion. <laughs> yeah, uh, in all ages, you've had the, uh, universities. Even the ancient world had universities. And the, the term even alumni is from Illumined. Uh, so they've used this all down through the ages. I think the Oxford Dictionary claims that, that, that the Illuminati uh, first were mentioned publicly um, as a, an occultic group around the, the, the 12th and 13th centuries onwards. And so Weishaupt was simply one member of one group popping his head up in one place in history. He, he wasn't the boss. However, what he did use uh, at that time, he used the term a world citizen. And the Rockefeller Center and the Rockefeller Foundation, and I have Rockefeller on, on tape giving awards for world citizenship. Uh, that came from the Illuminati. Yeah. The whole idea of um, world government. Mm -hmm. And world citizen citizenship, yeah. Sure. Mm -hmm. All right. Um, move along. A couple others here. It said, okay, it says, um, please explain the origins of the belief system of the illumined ones. Mm -hmm. for lack of a better term, what is their legend? Where do their gods come from? Well, that, that really is what we've already covered, uh, that they were different. Uh, we're talking about the high ones, not the ones who worked their way up, but the ones who are hereditary. Uh, they do claim that they came here from, or, or were put here. It's, it's often kind of vague there. Uh, and... Um, they willed matter to create perfect bodies for themselves to inhabit since they believed they were perfect spirit. And uh, they, they, if, as long as they interbred, that was the whole key to it, was the interbreeding, they would always reproduce the same strains from the same original bodies so that their spirits could keep re-inhabiting re or reincarnating into the same family lineages. And, and they really believe this stuff. Yeah. Uh, well, you know, what about... What about the monarchical families that still exist in Europe. I mean, they're in on this whole situation, are they not? Uh, they are. Uh, there's no doubt. I mean, even with Prince Charles, he didn't pick his wife. Uh, his wife was picked for him. And and then who does the picking? Now we know that the the, the Burks period, they do all the the, the genealogies for for the the rich and the, the aristocracy. Uh, but there's obviously it's still today a priesthood which arranges the marriages and, and does all the, 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 the work. Uh, today they even do DNA and you know, samples and everything. Well, is, it, is it true that she was in the line of the Stuarts, which supposedly is the house from which the uh, Windsors rested um, the uh, throne? Uh, yeah, she, she was. Uh, she had some of the Stuart in her, but also it was interesting. I think it was her. Her grandfather was also a, a banker from New York. So they're all intertwined. <laughs> the one thing that dawned on me was the fact that if the Windsors were seen legitimately as illegitimate <laughs> in uh -huh. terms of uh, taking uh, control of the throne, mm -hmm. that if they could get themselves a, an heir of the Stuarts and have children, which would be the two boys, uh -huh. then they're actually back in business again. Yes, uh, there's no doubt uh, that's what they believe. But even to go further back um, to Robert the Bruce, uh, 
which started all this kind of thing. Then the steward take, took the steward was the steward. You see, it was a title at one time, and uh, even Robert the Bruce was not a Scotsman. Uh, you, you always find the elite rule over people, and they don't belong to the same ethnic right. origin. And Robert the Bruce was Robert de Brucey. He was a Norman. And it was the Normans who brought these people in with them. And they're a very strange... It's never been explained who these Normans really were, who came in with their vast armies and, and did campaigns all over Europe, which really, on a financial scale, was over the budget of the Second World War. You know? Well, the Normans, are, are, are they also part um, uh, Scandinavian? They, no, but what they do is they claim that they can also come from the north of France up to uh, Norway, Sweden, and use that as a jumping point into to Britain. Um, but they also came across the channel, and they, flo- they, they took across prefabricated forts. There were acres and acres and, and wide. Uh, massive undertakings and logistical supplies going way back through Europe, uh, heavily financed, and they brought all these ancient coats of arms. People today will say, well, or generalists will say, this came up during the, the Crusades, all this, uh, this uh, coats of arms, but that's not true at all. Uh, they, they had these coats of arms, or these special families anyway. They brought them with them when they came into England. So, so the Normans bear some uh, looking into as far as the, uh, the size of their operation. Uh, absolutely. And even where they came from in this way. They used the same techniques as the, as the communists do today. Uh, Trotsky wrote a book, which was, uh, I think it was in praise of terror, uh, by using the terrorism to get the, the public to comply. And, and you'll find the same thing with, with uh, William the Conqueror, the Norman, uh, who used to uh, grab all the prisoners that were outside the castles or the towns, and, and the old and infirm, and he would burn their eyes out, knowing the onlookers were watching from the parapets. He used all the terror uh, techniques as they did in ancient times that the Hamites used you'll find in ancient records of the brotherhood of the Hamites who who, who really um, looted all over the Middle East and that the Hamites were a brotherhood they brought, a, they brought in criminals who went through a sort of formal initiation similar to, to masonry and they did drag off all the useless eaters that they couldn't sell as slaves and they would cut their hamstrings that's where cutting the hamstring comes from so these people, right down to William the Conqueror, were using the same techniques. And it's never been explained how it got from the Middle East, the ancient Middle East, right down to present history. And neither has the inauguration um, ceremonies of the Queen, which goes back to the days of Nimrod. I mean, here you have a, a woman sitting on a raised um, ziggurat-type dais um, with an ermine uh, coat on, which Nimrod wore. You'll see in the old uh, stellas that have been found. Holding the same type of scepter, etc., with these bishops with their crooks and all that round about them in the same places, uh, someone knows these formulas. And why is this happening in England even today? Because nothing ever changes. Yeah, but they, they know this. Where, where do these archives of information exist? Because they're not in public libraries. And yet these people are so stuck on tradition. Right. And in the Westminster Abbey, where they do these inaugurations, uh, you have um, different knights of the Normans, again, who are entombed there, and they're laying on their... You know, they have these statues of laying down, 
over their tombs, and in one of them, they've got six or three tiers of Egyptian obelisks uh, going up the wall, and the checkerboard floor, the tesserated floor on the wall between these these obelisks. Uh, what's that doing? What's this Egyptian stuff doing from the 13th century? What's it doing in England? And hmm. Westminster Abbey. But do you believe that's an extension of the Templars' involvement in all this? I think it's even uh, pre-Templar. Uh-huh. Right. Yeah. All right. Uh, can we do this? I'm not going to keep you much longer, but if we could take a break just now, a couple of minutes, and we'll come back and I'll finish all these questions. Are you all right? With sure, you? I'm fine. Yeah. All right. Uh, we're listening. Uh, well, you're listening to the grassy knoll. We have with us Alan Watt. Uh, we're just going to take a couple of seconds, and uh, we're going to come right back and finish up these questions. We thank you, Alan, for being as gracious as you are to uh, see this out. Uh, we'll give you some more information about uh, uh, Alan and, and, uh, and uh, some of the work that he's done. Also, when this time you get a chance and you're on the Internet, and I'm sure you are if you're listening live, and that is go to cuttingthroughthematrix.com and take a look. All right, we'll be back in a couple of seconds. Thank you. A little bit more time. And, again, uh, Alan White has been good enough to uh, stay with us a couple of minutes longer because we have a couple of questions that people did pose throughout the week, and we'd like to get to them if we can. The website is Cutting Through the Matrix. Um, the series that he wrote, a three-volume series, is um, the Cutting Through series. He's coming out with more DVDs. And would you say, Alan, in general, that for the most part, uh, uh, people should just stay uh, tuned? Uh, I'd, I'd say so. Uh, I'd say so, because I'm going to try to explain why, uh, since the 60s especially, um, you've seen the, the fulfillment of theosophy uh, and you've seen it come into fruition, the whole movement towards uh, a new age, uh, which was planned long ago, um, and, and the mixing of the religions together, especially Hinduism, uh, coupled with channeling. Uh, it's, very, it's interesting to see that uh, uh, everything promotes channeling today. Uh, even psychologists, a lot of psychologists promote it. Um, past lives, find out who you are, channel, and bringing it, bring in an entity and find out who you are. Uh, this is almost as though there's an awful lot of entities waiting to occupy bodies right now. <laughs> and it's been promoted from the top down uh, now, and why not before? Mm-hmm. You know, so that's an interesting phenomenon to see, because as I say, nothing happens in the system unless it's promoted from the top. They never allow anything to come out of the grassroots, which might upset and have a ripple effect and knock everything haywire. So people should stop and think before they fall into all of these traps that are laid out for them and which will shape their minds exactly as the planners intended it happen and, and them to be. So you've got to start thinking for yourself. Um, well, are you thinking that um, there's a certain proximity to some kind of... Uh Cataclysm? Uh, not so much a cataclysm as the end of, of, of many, many thousands of years of planning the great work. The great work they claim, and even rabbis will claim this, that it began around four and a half thousand BC. Uh, they all had the same stories of something coming or something being born. The Greeks talked about. Uh, um, uh, the light falling from the sky, a meteor, that type of thing. They use these allegories to describe the plan getting, being born on Earth to the great work, which was the perfection of not just the world, but everything in it, which they claimed was left imperfect by the Creator. 
job was for all of the elite and uh, through science especially to reshape everything by understanding nature breaking it down to, to its tiny atoms etc and, and restructuring it in a more efficient fashion in, but especially man himself they want to create a whole new type of humanity and that's why the rush has been on for so long for genetic engineering I um I heard you use the word diabolic before, mm-hmm. and then a couple with what another person has um, uh, asked of you and said, um, I, I hear Alan speak of the Bible as complete fiction, but then he has made references to the Bible and or Jesus as factual too. Mm-hmm. Uh, and like I said, if you use the word diabolic, that could be looking at it, and you know, now it has a very secular meaning. Yeah. But do you believe, um, I mean, it, it, do, are you, well, let me just straight, straight out ask you, do you believe in Satan? Um, I believe in uh, that there's definitely evil, and I'd love, I would love as, a, as an individual uh, to put everything down to hidden sciences, uh, advanced sciences. Um, I know there are innate powers within people and psychic abilities. Uh, however, it's beyond that, uh, because I've, I've seen people... Uh, which you would call possessed I and mean, you have no other word for it it's, all, it's the only word we have it's like diabolical we don't have the, any other words in the English language to explain or describe the evil here but I've had people come up to me and, and talk to me um, I, I could even go further than say come, coming up to me but address me as a, a demon you know you? oh yeah okay uh, directly and I was with a guy from a very big um uh, rock group we'd gone to a very small party and um, it was towards the, the, the end of the night there was only a, a few people there most of them were but falling asleep wherever they could and the woman I won't say who it was but she was up there too um, she floated down the stairs I, I mean floated and I, I'd, I'd taken no drugs I didn't think anybody had slipped anything in, in uh, the drink I was, I was drinking and uh, she floated down this, these white stairs um, right up to me and she, she came within a few inches of my face her eyes rolled up uh, and were pure red and she says you know you're a very powerful person we could do amazing things together and I tried to keep very calm and I just said I, I don't think so at least not tonight <laughs> so she turned around she got this weird grin on her face and uh, turned around and floated all the way back. And the guy was with me. I thought he'd fallen asleep. And he, and, um, he came over and he says, Alan, he says, tell me I was dreaming, but I, I saw this woman float down the stairs. <laughs> I said, well, you did. So he said, I'm, I'm glad you did or I'd be worried about myself. But I, I've, had, I've seen a lot of, I've had a lot of this kind of um, uh, things happen to me throughout my, my life. I've also seen people especially when I'm trying to put the word out to people what I know I've seen people being taken over and in, in just around me in fact and do incredible things uh, so I can't deny uh, I could always try to say well maybe they're using some strange form of science which they certainly do have to get into people's minds and make them behave this way but, but I don't think it's all that at all because you feel the presence of these people arriving before they, before they come to the door. You, you feel them tangibly coming. And when one comes to your door that, you, that you've seen before as the person and hears a, a, a person talking with a different voice, um, 
saying the most amazing things to you, uh, and you felt it long before they came to the door. You, you know the presence is there, so I, I can't deny it. You know, I've also seen some of the big uh, rock groups at parties when some of the high priests have come in, and um, there's a lot of occultic stuff that they definitely deal with, which works. It's, I mean, it's real. It's definitely real. Yeah. Like, but you can hear, 
you know, Bush used every so often, mm-hmm. between Christendom, no matter how debacked it is, and Islam. Oh, it's on. There's no doubt this was, this is a crusade for sure. It's the, it's the final crusade. Um, this is to standardize the world, and everyone must be brought under the same system of what they call democracy or, or elite-driven socialism. Uh, the Muslims just don't fit in. They don't have central banks in some of these countries. They're not on, on the, the world banking system especially. They're not on the UNESCO program except the ones America's taken over already. So UNESCO was created to, to give a common culture to, to youngsters the world over. Um, so the school system, does it not? Yes, and that's the first thing they set up in Iraq when they moved in. Was UNESCO was the first one in, uh, after, the, after the world the, the central bank was put up. Well, you might also remember uh, when Bush was looking for the imprimatur of the UN, uh-huh. and he gave that speech, um, you know, n- not in any kind of uh, 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 pop and circumstances. He just mentioned, uh, we're going to go back into UNESCO. Uh-huh. Yep. Ronnie had kicked out. Uh-huh. And I had a laugh because it's like, there's the quid pro quo. I know. I know that it's essential for them to create a world culture. Brzezinski wrote about it in the Grand Chessboard, and they, they must uh, bring a common culture world, basically based on uh, the United States to an extent, but it's a different United States. It's the United States which will come out of it just as changed as the countries have taken over. Well, uh, Charlotte Elizabeth writes about, um, about that situation where uh, a lot of the plans for education are mutually held by both Russia or back when the Soviet Union mm-hmm. and the United States, I mean USA, U- USSR, whatever, you know, mm-hmm, yeah. um, but it's, it's going to be a global education and you can see this through the international baccalaureate programs down here in the States, yeah. mm-hmm. uh, also with this whole idea of the world education community, so uh, yeah, we're all going to be trained the same way in, in years to come. Yeah, we'll have the same opinions, the same thoughts, right. yeah. And if, if you're a bad boy, then you're going to have to get re-indoctrinated and spend your time at the computer and take the test, aren't you not? That's it. Uh, until they do chip us all, and then we, we won't have to. They won't have to worry about us being individuals. We'll be programmed. In fact, at the Loyola meeting, they said that, that central, uh, regionalized computers would literally operate the, the public uh, within a certain radius for jobs. So you won't be able to think for yourself. You will not be you anymore. You'll be a machine. Yeah. Well, okay, so you're almost coming to a point where it is true about Borg. Oh, Borg is the original B. I mean, this is the Masonic coding, you know, and the, 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 that's why they gave it the name the Borg. And uh, uh, the beehive has been high in masonry ever since. That's why they used it at the Loyola meeting. Um, but the Borg is, is B-Org, original B. It's the B that they want to create for the hive. And it's no mistake on the Star Trek uh, series... The Borg ship was called the Hive, yeah. and it was a square cube, or the cube, which is the Ashlar, the perfect squared stone of Freemasonry, the perfect society. And, and of course, it, it's pretty well known that um, that that whole series, the first one ever, Star Trek, was born out of uh, a Mason, uh, Roddenberry. Uh, it's the Red Berry. I mean, even his name is the Red Berry. You know, <laughs> Roden from the Greek. So. So the red berry, and, and his gene, the gene of the red berry, is quite telling. But he was also a member of NASA, and he went to the main meetings, and this is called predictive programming. And his job was to take the, where NASA was going to take the public. And NASA's job isn't just traveling in space, it's primarily satellites. 
which will monitor and eventually control all, all of us. That's their real job. So he was told to write stories around that to change the culture of the public. And the Star Trek series was the federation of a proper council of 12, the, the Kabbalistic Council of 12, and uh, travel through space and bring everybody into a free galactic trade, free trade. And those, those nations or planets which wouldn't join them were bad guys, always nasty guys. And the ones who did join were always nice and pleasant. And so they were, and of course, all the aliens were really multiculturalism and how they could all get on together if they really tried. So this was how they programmed the children for what's coming on Earth. Well, two things that are really interesting. One, of course, the very first, uh, well, the pilot show of the Star Trek involved the uh, court martial. What was it, Captain Pike? Mm hmm. And Pike is, is obviously not a coincidence. Oh, no, no. And uh, secondly, I got to tell you, um, I saw a newsreel. Uh, we talked about this oh, probably two years ago. But there's a newsreel about um, uh, the beginning of the United Nations mm -hmm. and how the Rockefellers granted land on the east side of Manhattan for it. Yeah. Well, when they're playing the backdrop music, I kid you not, and um, I really should send it to you so you could see this, hear this for yourself. Uh -huh. The strains of the music back in that 1948 or 49 newsreel, underneath this whole segment about the uh, creation of the United Nations, mm -hmm. is exactly the strains from Roddenberry's Star Trek theme. Yeah. <laughs> now, of course, he's credited with writing that music. Uh -huh. uh, so I can only assume that either he borrowed or... But I mean, believe me, uh -huh. you hear it, there's no doubt. Yeah. You, you can see the whole thing, you know, with the, the ship, you know, Man the Last Frontier. Mm -hmm. And that, that oh, it, it's amazing. And, and, and even the name uh, Enterprise is, 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 is from the... the, the, the blesses on this Enterprise. It's the same thing. Now, where did you say this meeting was? At what Loyola University? Uh, I think it's in Louisiana. Oh, the one down New Orleans? I believe so. Okay. And that's where they held. They've had two so far on the same topic. And it's to do with, they had all the top geneticists involved and uh, guys from the microchip companies. They were all there too and scientists of all kinds. And uh, Newt Gingrich was the, he kicked off the meeting. He was chosen to kick it off. And the, the U.S. Department of Commerce paid for it. They put out 600 pages on on this. They said that they would promote this chip as a positive thing through cartoons, uh, novels, movies, and so on, uh, to make it a, a positive thing to, to, to go for. Yeah. Well, I got to ask you this. It, it does dovetail into this next question, and we only have two after that. And, mm -hmm. and thank you again for, for spending some time over the uh, the hour. Uh huh. Um, Loyola, obviously Jesuitical, true? Yeah. Mm -hmm. All right, Jesuits, Vatican, Freemasonry. In this day and age, in fact, in all days and ages, you could never keep separate secret societies apart from each other. They'd infiltrate each other. And long ago, they all became one. Uh, just like the United Nations, UN is UN in French, one. That's what it means. Mm -hmm. So, uh, so they were, all, they've been part, they've all been one main system of control for hundreds of years. Well, this person wanted to know um, what about the conflict between the Roman, uh, the Roman Catholic Church, I would say the Vatican, I wouldn't even say the R.C. Church, but perhaps in Freemasonry. If that thing, if there ever was um, a problem, if that problem doesn't exist any longer, does it? I, I, I think at the high levels of the Vatican, uh, it's, it's, never, it's never been a problem because Pythagoras, who came out of Egypt to start his form of indoctrination of the youth, into the revolutionary system uh, used the same color coding as the Vatican. Uh, the, the guy at the top was white, 
color coding system right down through the Vatican to the guy in the bottom who deals with the profane who are in the dark so that the priest at the bottom wears black uh, with a little slit in front of his throat so they doesn't give you all the truth is uh, not permitted to that's why the collar is black most of the way around his head except for the bit at the front this is all Pythagorean that goes back long long before the creation of the Vatican now it's possible you can, you can have a Pope who doesn't know if you take from the bottom and thrown right up there but the guys the Curia they certainly know uh, the mysteries and I think they always did and what about the Jesuits, who obviously were a military order, not necessarily a spiritual order, and who mm. call their head a general? Yeah. Uh, do you mm. see them um, as being players in this global stage? Uh, they are. They were much bigger players than they are today, because now uh, you'll find the same system um, of uh, masonry, you might call it masonry, it's a loose term, mm-hmm. but it really is all the same thing. Uh, it's, it's really the head of the CIA, the Mossad, the MI6. In fact, you have to be one to get up there now. And uh, that was written about by a guy in it. Uh, he called it Spycatcher. Um, uh, he joined, and he was told he had to join the Freemasonry to be accepted in MI5 and 6. That, that was Charles White, his name was. Yeah. You understand... Um through, I guess it is, uh, Operation Paperclip. Is it your understanding, I should say, mm-hmm. that the Vatican did uh, secrete out a number of uh, mm-hmm. high-ranking Nazis? Oh, yeah. And I think the public should realize this, too. We've got to, we've got to stop playing the ethnic and, and religious game because this is the, the, the... Nazism was not just a national thing. It was a philosophy. And anyone could join it as long as you believed and gave your oath to that philosophy. And at the top of that philosophy, which wasn't to end with Germany, it was to travel on. Um, and didn't they export it here, though? Oh, they did. In fact, I think the, the, one of the main teachers that, that, that taught at, uh, uh, was at Michigan uh, University or, um, came from, from there. He was given the orders to go and teach it in, in America. And he's taught some of your present big boys up there in, in the government, the federal government. And, and, and he was a Jew. And I think it's time that Jewish people realized that there were also Jewish Nazis here who belonged to this other brotherhood. And that's the key to it. When you join this brotherhood, um, you give up your ethnic origins and your family origins. And your new brother is, is a member of the order worldwide, whoever he may be. Well, I, I, w- I won't go down this road, but this is what makes me at least believe that it is true, that, uh, that many of the Zionists who may have Jewish surnames or whatever could not care less about Jewry. They couldn't. In fact, it was interesting in the Star Trek series that they used a Talmudic uh, quote quite often by Mr. Spock, who was a Vulcan, the Volcanos. That's what Vulcan was. He was told that, that symbolized in the mysteries total logic and power. So, so, he, so Mr. Spock uh, was the Vulcan, and he would often say, the few must perish for the sake of the many, the sacrifice. And, and that they don't mind sacrificing people because they don't see them as their own anymore. They belong to a much higher group that's right. that's transcended their old religion. That transcends religions and statehoods and everything. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And here we go to uh, the next of the last few questions, and that is the Star of David, this, this uh, listener writes, Mm-hmm. And the quote, square and compass, mm-hmm. unquote, of Freemasonry, form the same shape. I imagine this is not a coincidence, since the Star of David is also seen in Masonic, Masonic symbolism. Mm-hmm. What is the meaning of that symbol? And would you not say, I mean, I've heard rabbis say that 
honestly, they always vote on the Israeli flag. It should be a menorah. Uh-huh. Well, there's not. So it's like you want to speak to the Star of David and its, and its Masonic implications. Well, yeah. I mean, it, 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 it's uh, you'll find it in ancient inscriptions in India. That's where it came from originally. And it's above and below. It's male and female. It's the two forces within man itself. Uh, because women, according to the mysteries, uh, they, they really hate the women. And so the woman is, is left on one hand, which is sinister by night, they call it sinister, and Dexter is right. In the mysteries, they also use the above, which is heavenly, which is male, and the female, which is earthly, which is below, she's base. Uh, they really hate the female. And, and those women who are following this in the side orders are, are getting told a lot of nonsense because they're despised at the top. In fact, it's declared they're not efficient enough. Their emotion gets in their way of efficiency, and that's why the new type of creature will be created genetically. So it's the above and below. It's the, the trinity above and the trinity to the below as well, and there's many different levels of meanings to the different trinities as you go up the ladder. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Also, I think it's interesting that in Pike's book, which he wrote, uh, The Morals and Dogmen, in 1878, mm-hmm. you'll see the Star of David there, mm-hmm. as well as the, uh, I guess, the evolution of the Tau symbol, which becomes the Iron Cross that, you know, both uh, Malta, mm-hmm. uh, Knights of Malta use, and, and um, the Templars used, I guess, and also the Ku Klux Klan, mm-hmm. and also the variations of the Sun Wheel, which became eventually the Nazi symbol, and, he, and here he has them in that book uh, back in 1878. Mm-hmm. Um, also, um, it says here, uh, and here's the other thing. Um, I, I believe there's, there's a chosen body there in Israel, but the government is just as corrupt as ours. So when I look at that that Star of David on their flag, I mean, that's just, to me, that is a flag. Mm-hmm. You know, that obviously um, there, are, there are other entities uh, and, and, uh, who have desires on what, what's called the Holy Land. Oh, oh definitely. The, the, the thing is, though, the trick is they've got to always use the public to back them. And they've got the Christians backing them, they have many Jews, but not all Jews either, uh, backing them uh, to fulfill the prophecies of Isaiah, you know. And, and of course, that's, so they need this public support through, through religion. And uh, it's got nothing to do with the gold sink it has. And it's no coincidence that that blue is also the UN blue. Um, the, the, and the occult and the higher mysteries, the blue is the light of day where things to an extent are simple and in the open but I stress the word simple because it's not the depth of understanding because they also have the black lodge at night and and that is where the mysteries are explained the other side of man you might say and uh, so the blue lodge is at the bottom that's where the gullible ones join and and they don't really know what's going on but uh, there's also the black side of it so there's always an equivalent opposite of what you see in any flag and there's an opposite one to the to the one for Israel too. And by the way, I don't know people. I I write for a local newspaper. I do a column, and I got attacked for this. But I'm sorry. I mean, when I take a look at the whole idea of the use of a star uh, on our flag, or whether it's uh, North Korea's or you know whatever, mm-hmm. I'm like, why is it a pentagram? Mm-hmm. I mean, a star doesn't look like a pentagram to me when I look up in the air. Mm-hmm. So is this a coincidence that they would use a five-pointed star? Uh, or a five-pointed uh, uh, graphic mm-hmm. to represent something? I mean, it, it, it's... Not at all. It's, it's, it's not a... It, it, it represents the, the um, man, the divine, to an extent. 
that same logo you'll see that this is supposedly sent off into space with the, with the naked man with his legs apart, his arms out. That, that's the five-pointed star as man the divine. And of course, in their belief system, there's always an, an opposite force to make things work, to balance things. So if when the star is pointing down, that's the diabolus or, or, or the evil, or the, evil uh, the dark side of man. Uh, however, technically in a sense too, um, no, I can't go really too far and be too graphic with it because you have to go into the sexual okay. details to explain. But uh, there's far, far more to all of these things than just what I've said here. Yeah. Well, did you touch upon that in any of the books? Uh, not yet, but I, okay. I will, and I'll have to explain this. This, you know, it's okay. fairly graphic. Yeah. All right. Um, and here's a here's a great one. I mean, this is salacious, no doubt. It said because uh, <laughs> for something completely different, I heard Alan briefly mention on an earlier show. He had been to Jimmy Page's mansion and witnessed an eyes-wide-shut type of ritual. Can you ask him to elaborate on that? Well, Jimmy Page bought Alistair Crowley's home mm-hmm. uh, up near Loch Ness. And uh, I knew uh, some of the people there, including the guy who did the covers for the albums, uh, Colby, Barry. <clears throat> so we went to the party, and uh, it was a pretty standard type party and uh, <laughs> what does that mean though <laughs> well uh, these guys just don't little, bring little bags there or stuff they have wheelbarrows come in and oddly enough the, 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 the police stay away because there's Masonic connections and there's a standard too mm-hmm. and they flew uh, they fly in uh, young girls uh, teenagers and from fans you might say or groupies from all over Europe uh, for the party you know so they have their big um, sort of orgy type scene, yeah. Oh, but but you also have the priests coming in too. With the, they look like Jesuits or Mormon priests. You'll see the same ones uh, performing marriages coming in before they put on their robes. They'll uh, uh, be dressed the same way when they perform Wiccan weddings and stuff. There is a story that um, that Paige can never spend a night alone in that place. Is that true or not? Oh, not really. I mean, it's, uh, the place was supposed to be haunted by an old chief who either he was killed or he killed someone and threw the head along the corridor and you hear rumbling at night. Uh, but I, I do know that the house itself was kept original because Crowley had his various uh, pentagrams and stuff on the walls and various occultic symbols and they hadn't painted it because it had left, been left unused for years since Crowley that the locals wouldn't go near the place, you know. Uh, Did Zeppelin ever record there? I don't know. Uh, I played at one studio not too far away. I did a lot of session work as well. Uh, and sometimes I used to, to go in and do whole albums for, for people, write it, and perform in them if they were too stoned to do it. But uh, um, I went to one which wasn't so far from there, from Inverness, and that was set up by David Balfe, who uh, wrote a lot of songs himself. I was a 48 tracks to do, he put up. And that was the that was the newest one that came along. Yeah. All right, we got one last question. I'm going to cut it off right here. Uh, uh, it said, uh, "No, this is a bit off topic, but since Alan has talked about secret society so much, I was wondering if he has done any research into the serial serial killer Henry Lee Lucas, who claims he was part of a secret society called the Hand of Death." Uh, not him. I've looked into other ones. Um, I, I do know that uh, there was another one in the States with a Spanish name. He was tried a few years ago, 
he gave the usual Satan sign in court, etc., and talked on behalf of Satan. Um, I, I know that uh, serial killers, killers tend to be well connected with the occult, um, especially when they've been videotaping murders, uh, which are snuff films. Mm-hmm. Uh, there was one in Canada not long ago, a few years, uh, with a male and female. Um, and what was never explained is why videotapes of each one of these murders, uh, they found some in a river in Canada tied to a buoy, and, and a woman eventually came forward to a professor or Driscoll in Canada from Hong Kong saying that this stuff was, these, these videos were being distributed to very important people across the Far East and Japan as well. Well, and of course, I, I'm sure you're aware, I mean, uh, John DeCamp wrote the book, The Franklin Cover-Up. Are you familiar with that? Yeah. All right, and um, do you believe that was a pretty accurate account, or do you think there's something uh, a little weird there? I don't know uh, if it's weird. Generally, there'd be no trails left whatsoever. Uh, things generally never get out into the open um, to the public unless they wanted to. Uh, it, it is possible there's a, a type of spell they like to cast you might say like the Jack the Ripper uh, thing in London which was well done in, the, in that movie that came out um, with, with the Johnny Depp um, from Hell uh, that came because Scotland Yard did declassify the documents on the murder and Sir William Gall who was the chief uh, surgeon to the royal family uh, they knew he committed the murders in Masonic rituals. He, he killed each woman in a, in a Masonic ritual and left uh, right down to Mitre Square and to the places where he left the bodies. Um, and that was to also form a, a type of spell over the public, keep them in terror. Um, they do this kind of thing every so often with serial killers. The word serial um, comes from series which is the ancient goddess of, of uh, Greece. And uh, it was the most bloodiest time as they sacrificed the children and so on to the goddess Ceres. Yeah. Oh, that's how she was sated with... Uh, yeah, blood. Uh-huh. Yeah, like Moloch. Mm-hmm. And of course, Moloch is connected to uh, yeah. that place that uh, the camp realized mm-hmm. he was uh, getting information about from Benachi. Mm-hmm. And that is uh, with the, uh, the big, uh, the tall oaks and... Uh, not Oaks, but the, uh, what was it out there? Redwoods. Uh-huh, yeah. And realized that, in fact, it was Bohemian Grove. Yes, but, uh-huh, yeah. But, you know, you're right. You know, when things get out, you do wonder. I mean, even with Quigley writing so much about uh, Rose's crew, yeah. other things were not stated, like there is the Pilgrim Society, which nobody ever talks about. Well, I know, I know. It's fascinating to what to read and, and understand. Uh, even when the Puritans came in, uh, these strange Puritans who all became very wealthy families um, they came in with massive amounts of money uh, and, and pretended to have this uh, sort of Christian type front on them there's far more to it than that they, they, they came from all over Europe you know and they had a lot in common with the, the Cathars really um, and the Albigensians than you would, you would imagine uh-huh. yeah um We've done some series with the informer who uh, talks about really the whole construct and the fable of the United States and being not us but a certain crew down in the District of Columbia. Yeah. You know, and uh, what was written uh, in the Constitution, the Bill of Rights, was not necessarily for us but for them. 
sexual. Sure. And even even the Plymouth Rock, you know, ply means many, many rocks, many rocks symbolizing a pyramid. Sure. Uh, this is all in our face, in a sense, if you think about it. Yeah. And May 1, 1776? Uh, yes. Uh-huh. All right. Um, Alan, listen, it's, it, you know, I'll talk to you the next 24 hours and forever. Thanks very much again. That's a pleasure. See you down the road, okay? Okay, doke. Thank you so much. Bye now. And good night.